Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the fifth episode of Prodigious Kentuckians. I'm your host, Trent Garrison, and Julie Martinez is my co-host. Tonight's show is on solar in Kentucky. We're going to look at it from three different perspectives, from the installation perspective, real estate, and large solar projects. We have excellent guests, Chad Dickerson, uh, John Cotton, and Adam Edlin. These are all people who know lots and lots and lots about solar. We had a little bit of technical difficulty, so... When I, the transition is going to be jumping straight into Adam Edlin addressing a question about solar in Kentucky. Hope you enjoy. The thought economy, the digital economy, uh, the economy that offers the opportunity really to rise and, and raise all boats will never be part, will never be powered by dirty energy. It's just a, it's just a reality of the economic situation that we're living in. And what's fascinating is it, it really can bring together a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. You know, it wasn't government mandates that made renewable energy such, uh, such a power source that's in demand by the private sector. You know, the near entirety of the Fortune 500 now have public sustainability goals. And we're not just talking about the big data firms like Apple and Google and Facebook and, and all the others. We're talking Ford and Walmart and Toyota and Anheuser-Busch. And this is happening because it's a reaction to the marketplace. And uh, government hasn't mandated this, but, the, but the, the free market has, and it is an irresistible force. And so my firm helps uh, build utility scale solar projects in places where we can focus on social and economic impact. And that is leveraging um, the throw weight of these big companies uh, to benefit local economies and to help people uh, the, the, and particularly in coal country, where I think we've really built our reputation, um, to help the people who powered the industrial development of this country for 100 years be relevant to the economy of the next 100 years. And it's going to require us thinking differently. But make no mistake, this is being driven by millennials. It's being driven by a market responding to their behavior. And government at every level really is the laggard. And I hope that's about to change. And I hope we can talk about that tonight. Absolutely. Well, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I, you know, I, you and I talked about this a while back, and uh, I, I really appreciate you being on. I know you have some really interesting projects going on. So let's just jump right into it. Um, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier in the pre-shows. I, I wanted to clarify some things about solar in Kentucky. So let me just uh, ask this question. I'll let Julie have the next one. Our, if you look up, you know, uh, statistics on on the EIA's website or uh, SEIA or these, you know, different, different uh, people who study solar energy in different states, you'll see that Kentucky is ranked okay to poor in a lot of those areas with regard to solar potential and that sort of thing. Um, does, does that matter? Uh, do you care to talk a little bit about that? So, so let me jump in and, uh, and I'll kick it over to John. He, he can, he knows the technical aspect of this better than I do. I want everybody to listen to what I'm going to say directly. It doesn't matter at all. There is literally no place outside of a shaded area that doesn't work for solar in Kentucky. Now, there may be, there may be issues related to topography there, where the slopes are too, too uh, steep to put a panel on it, but the sun shines bright in this state. Um, and so there are there other places in America where there are more radiance, more sunshine? Certainly there are, but that doesn't mean every inch of Kentucky doesn't get adequate sunshine to power its position in the new economy. And, and so, John, you can, I guess, jump in and offer more the, the, the detail to that. But that's just a fact, folks. It works everywhere. Don't let anybody tell you it doesn't work. It does. And it's viable. It's a viable uh, solution and tool to help us build a modern economy in the state literally everywhere. I think, you know, you mentioned the, the charts you were talking about uh, as far as the solar productivity for the state. Um, you have to keep in mind when you look at, for instance, the National Renewable Energy Laboratories chart, which is the one you were referring to the, that is, they're the one that actually generated those maps. It'll show Kentucky at four and a half, well, four to five hours a day of peak sun production, depending on what part of the state you're in. Basically what that means though, is that is the hours of the day that the sun is essentially directly overhead. If you go to California, if you go to Arizona, New Mexico, where you expect it to be hotter, you expect to have longer days, the difference is, is that it's closer to the equator. 
So the southern exposure has a great deal to do with that. The closer to the yard to the equator, the longer your solar productivity is. If you want to look at some other really interesting comparisons, two of the states that are leading the nation in solar development, three of the states actually, are Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. All much further north than we are, much shorter proactive hours per day of solar production. When we design a system, typically we're looking at production hours of, on, at this time of year, we're, we're getting close to winter solstice here in just a few days. Winter solstice, you're looking at about four hours of productive, of really true solid productive light per day. Change that over to summer solstice, and now you're looking at about eight and a half to nine hours a day. So what they're looking at are the average, you know, they're taking all these hours across the board and they're finding an average light, uh, light irradiance through the course of the entire year. So to say, oh, it's only this amount, where they're looking at that amount with the low end being summer solstice. And I, and I spoke, misspoke. Summer solstice, or excuse me, winter solstice only has about two or two and a half hours of really active production sunshine. But you're looking essentially four to eight weeks of the year where you've got a much shorter time period. The rest of the year, Kentucky produces a great deal of solar. Um, when we're designing systems, what we're looking to do is take an averaged amount of production so your winter months, uh, and we'll get into net meter in a minute because this all kind of rolls into that same discussion. But for residential and smaller commercial uh, systems that are 45,000 watts and less, which fall under the net metering criteria for right now, um, that system is designed so you may, you're not gonna gain as much in the winter months, but in the summer months, you're gonna overcome that loss and on the annual year, of your actual annual output, you're going to take your billing down to a net zero status. So that's the, that's the basis of it. And we can get into that more, but I know Chad's got other things to say instead of Adam, so I'll jump off here. We've, we've, we've asked the right people uh, to come on for the show. I can see that. Uh, so that so that's good. Um, I, I'll turn it over to Julie, unless Chad, do you have anything to add? To that? Uh, that was good, that was good. Well, you know, in the same kind of vein of things that, you know, maybe are common misconceptions about solar power, um, and particularly in our state, um, we also have a, a lot of times a concern about the environmental impact of creating um, the, the technology for solar. Um, in fact, as, as I was getting ready to get on this, I told my son that this was our topic for tonight, and he was, well, you know, mom, there's you know, impact from, from just the creation of the solar panel, so it's a good and a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> And so I'm wondering, um, you know, what is that? Is that a concern as, as we're thinking about installing more of these and, and spreading it across the state? Are we creating greater or is there kind of a, a, does it even out in the end? What's your perspective on that? I'll jump in. Uh, it, it more than evens out. Listen, are there environmental concerns related to the manufacturing of panels? Um, there are. Um, I would point out though that the vast majority of the panels that are manufactured on this planet are not manufactured inside the United States, which is a real problem. Uh, and we can talk about that later. But make no mistake, you simply cannot compare the economic benefit, excuse me, the environmental benefit of saving the planet through producing clean energy compared to burning fossil fuels. It, there, there just simply is no comparison. There's no moral equivalence at all. And the fact of the matter is that everything from natural gas to coal uh, to oil is a, is a dirty fuel um, that create emissions that uh, destroy the ozone layer. Solar doesn't do that. Now, are we getting better about making sure the new panels that are being made are made uh, with products that are 95% recyclable? Every major solar installation that goes into place uh, in Kentucky or elsewhere is required to post a reclamation bond, just like a coal company does, that after the site is um, ceases to be functional, that those panels have to be recovered, harvested, taken from the site, and the site returned to its previous uh, previous state. So um, the industry is getting better, but but make no mistake. Uh, panels and the manufacturing pan of panels are not significant polluters and do not significantly impact the environment in a negative way. As a matter of fact, the, 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 the work they do over the course of their operational life is absolutely vital uh, to us being able to meet the climate challenge. 
Okay, great. So the the next question I have, and feel and feel free to jump in. We we you know we we're pretty laid back around hey. here. Yeah, <laughs> is uh, something we're I guess we were talking about earlier is Kentucky relative to some of the surrounding states. Uh, we have a relatively low megawatt output as far as the, the number of uh, solar facilities installed. Um, that's according to the SEIA. And I was wondering if uh, if you wanted to talk a little bit about that, you know, why and is there anything we can do about that? Yeah, man, this is um, this was a this is a problem created by people and it's one that will be solved by people. And the answer is political. Um, Kentucky is a laggard in the adoption of renewable energy which again is not just a precondition for meeting the climate challenge, but a precondition for building a modern economy. You simply must have it to get there. The reason Kentucky is so far at the back of the pack is a bipartisan failure of political leadership. Simply put, the leaders in Kentucky failed to contemplate a renewable energy future, failed to see the incredible shift that's occurring in the private sector. And as a result, we don't have the incentives that other states have. We don't have a diversified energy portfolio that requires our local utilities to, um, to really invest in renewables. So we, it really is twofold. Um, failure by our political leadership to get with the 21st century. Um, and, and the other is that the utilities in Kentucky uh, have too much power, pun intended. Um, we need to democratize the grid. We need to get people involved because listen, this and, and this needs to be one of the great sort of culminating people-powered events uh, in Kentucky. Because if 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 our elected leaders, Republican and Democrat, do not seize this opportunity, we are going to be so far behind it. It's it's incredible, and you simply cannot build a new economy, the the, the digital economy, the information age economy. With when you're relying on traditional power sources, they won't use it. And when you see everybody from Facebook to Google to Amazon to Ford and Toyota and Walmart and Anheuser Busch uh, running ads talking about how they're going to, they're either 100% renewable or they're going to be there in a few years, folks. This is a permanent market force, and states that cannot offer renewable energy. Uh, will not get these opportunities. We are functionally off the grid, and it is an emergency. Um, we do a lot of work with App Harvest. App Harvest is one of the most exciting new agritech companies anywhere. They built the ninth largest building in the world in Moorhead, Kentucky, in, in greenhouses. I, I was there this morning. Their frustration is that their, their growth in Kentucky, where they really desperately want to be, is limited because we don't, we don't have leaders who have had the vision to understand that not only do we have to embrace renewable energy as a market reality, but we've got to put policies in place that make it happen. And, the, and having been a politician, having won and lost elections, folks, I can tell you that if you want an elected official to see the light, they've got to feel the heat. And this has got to become an issue that motivates people electorally in Kentucky, or we're going to fall more than a century behind in where we ought to be in terms of economic development. If, if I can also add part of what Adam was saying, and, and I know Chad experiences this in Northern Kentucky, to give you a good inroad on that, Duke Energy, which you know services a large part of Chad's area up in North Kentucky, um, this past year initiated a $2 million uh, incentive in South Carolina and also in North Carolina for people to install solar. At the same time, they're pushing to drive and get rid of net mirroring in northern Kentucky. So basically what they're doing is taking northern Kentucky and taking the, the opportunity for power investment there by individuals and by small businesses and large commercial businesses and transferring that to south North Carolina where their operational expenses are more. But they're, they're making that change, but we're the ones paying for that. Um, Adam and I met over 20 years ago when we were both working for the state quite a number of years ago. And at the time, one of the things I realized, I was director for wood product marketing for Kentucky, was that Kentucky is a resource state. We supply other states with the opportunity to make profit, whether it's coal, whether it's not so much steel now, but back then steel, wood, you know, tobacco. We don't manufacture cigarettes, but we've grown tobacco for decades that other states manufacture and they make the money on it. Kentucky has long had this history of being the raw material state, to be the, the, the lower end of the supply chain. We're not the upper end. Now, fortunately, the automotive industry has begun to change that within the past 25 years. We still have a long ways to go from that standpoint. But 
the utilities are controlling that economic growth and those economic growth segments, putting more emphasis on their profits than they are the overall opportunity to grow the state, which would increase their profits by, by increasing the amount of businesses here. And it is a, a cyclic situation um, until, the, as Adam mentioned, until the politicians get a lot more proactive and stand up the utilities and saying, look, you're actually slowing down the growth of the state, not enabling it. We're going to continue to see this pattern take place. And as I mentioned, Chad sees it firsthand up there in northern Kentucky working with Duke Energy. They're tough to work with up there. It's, you know, it's challenging. There's a lot of red tape. There's a, there's, it's a really slow process. But to, to echo both of your points, until there is some sort of bipartisan agreement, you know, electricity doesn't care which way you vote. You need electricity. And the clean economy is the greatest wealth opportunity of, of this century. Uh, there's this more is going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years. It's the industrial revolution. It's the new railroad, whatever you want to call it. And if we can get in and position Kentucky as a leader on this stuff, which there's a lot of guys trying to do that, it grows the entire economy by way of you, you attract these corporations from San Francisco. You know, Oracle just went to Austin, Texas. Stuff like that could exist for Kentucky in some capacity, but we have to show that we're willing to do the right thing. And, and renewable energy, especially in the construction phase, which you can speak to, Adam, tons of jobs, tons of jobs. You're, you're retraining people, they're getting a new skill set, and then after X amount of months, they can go somewhere else and work. And it's, it's just, we, we've got to do it now. If it's not done in the next three to five years, you're going to be riding everybody's coattails, that sort of thing. It's got to be done right now. Now is the time. And, and let me give a really concrete example that, you know, everybody who's watching, I think, can appreciate. Uh, Toyotas and, and Ford have gone a long way and may, are the primary drivers of Kentucky being the third largest automotive manufacturer in the country. That's a fact. We've got 80 some thousand people involved in automotive manufacturing and its affiliates. Toyota uh, led with uh, a sustainability commitment to meet the climate challenge that says they will be 100% green by 2040. They will be ahead of that. Ford has recently done the same thing. Folks, this isn't just about being able to lure new jobs here. This is an economic precondition of us being able to keep the jobs that we've got. These guys aren't fooling around. They're sharing, and, and these mandates aren't coming from government. I know that, that a lot of people on the right who are trying to preserve uh, the fossil fuel economy that, that doesn't exist anymore want people to believe that these are government mandates. Far from it. Every single one of these companies that I've just mentioned, and the vast majority of the Fortune 500 have adopted these as shareholder-driven uh, or, um, yeah, shareholder-driven commitments. And so they're doing it because it's smart. And, you know, I don't know if we need to get more people in government who sign the front of the paycheck rather than just the back, but we need to understand that businesses will not come here and locate if we don't have a green energy offering. And the ones we have will eventually leave because their shareholders and customers will make them. And so this isn't about good or bad. It's, you know, it, 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 you know it's like gravity. Gravity is neither good nor bad. It just is. And so what I would say is we either have to get with this or close up shop because this is a choice between being relevant to a, a green energy, higher wage, cleaner economy, or being a cheap knockoff version of Mississippi. And the, and the stakes are simply just that stark. That's a, a really interesting way to think about that, Adam. The, um, just the scale of it that what we're talking about. Um, we had some people who submitted questions in advance. And I think that I'd like to pull a couple of them in and, and put them together. You know, as we're thinking about, you know, what can we as individuals do? Obviously, what I'm hearing you all say right now is, you know, we need to be talking to our legislators. We need to be talking to our elected officials about the importance of this. Um, and so we can move this forward, hopefully in a bipartisan way at the governmental level. Um, but as residents, what opportunities are there for residents to um, bring solar in for their own homes? How does that typically work? What possibilities are there for individuals to try to move this forward um, in our state as well? And I'll let any of you jump in that would like to get started with it. I'm sure, John, you've got some thoughts. And Adam and Chad, I know you do. Chad, why don't you lead off on that on your end? Because it's a little bit different 
footprint in northern Kentucky, and it is down here in you know, central and southern Kentucky. Um, oh. Just a little bit different environment. But go ahead, please. So I, I am 100% involved in, in commercial solar installation. I can only, what I would speak to in regards to residential, and uh, I can send you guys a supplemental document after the fact. As, as far as financing a project goes, uh, there is a, a vehicle out there that's only seven years old, I believe. And there's some developers up here that quite frankly touted has found money, uh, PACE financing, property assessed, clean energy financing. And what that means is anything I'm building that I do something beneficial on the energy side. If I'm building a hundred apartments and I buy 100 energy efficient refrigerators, if I put in a nice fancy elevator, if I put in LED lighting, if I put in solar panels, I can finance this thing, which this gets us back to policy again. It has to be approved at a local level. It is approved in all the counties up here, but it's a county by county thing. They have to sign off on it. And it is a loan that will finance up to 30% of a project. So if you got a $10 million project, you've got $3 million to play with. And, and do some of these energy adding projects to your real estate asset. You can do that on a you can do that on a residential property. Uh, I've not I've not worked through one of those personally, but I know that you can do that. And it is tacked on to your property tax bill <clears throat> and financed typically over 25 to 30 years. So you just pay every year with your property taxes. And as I understand it, when you go to sell the property, it's as simple as signing one piece of paper and the benefit transfers to the new owner. Uh, it's that's it's frankly a game changer because there's no money down involved with it. So and, and interest rates are typically what I have seen. And this is commercial property, but retrofitting, you're looking at five and a half percent. And on new construction, you're looking at six and a half percent. So it's cheaper than mass finance. And then when you couple that with you really don't have to put any money down to do it. Uh, it's 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 a game changer, especially at the residential level. If you're doing a five or ten kilowatt system that might cost, and John, you correct me if I'm wrong, might cost thirty thousand dollars, something like that. If you can pay that over twenty five to thirty years, that's a real benefit, and it really makes it accessible to the general public. Where would someone find the information out to see if it's something that's available in their county? You can get on the PACE, you can just literally Google PACE financing in Kentucky and there's several resources on the website there. And uh, I will, I'll follow up with you guys and, and share a document, just a one pager with you for anybody that might want it after, after the call tonight. Yeah, that's a good question, Julie. I, I was actually gonna ask something similar and, and tell the people watching, whether it's now or you're listening to it later on a podcast or something that um, th there will probably be lots of numbers and, you know, those sorts of things thrown around. So if you want, you're welcome to reach out to me and I can, uh, I can try to find those answers for you, get, put you in touch. All right. Yeah. Good. John, do you have anything to add to that? Actually, um, we had a young lady, Angela, who um, sent in some questions earlier that uh, on my site uh, regarding this tonight. Um, first one was costs associated with getting, you know, solar for our house, uh, which also goes for smaller scale businesses. Um, Residential solar, you know, we've seen systems as, in, as inexpensive as about 15,000. Um, we've installed residential for large systems that can go upwards 60,000. Um, first thing to keep in mind right now, federally, there's what's called the ITC, it's income tax credit. If you install renewables uh, through the end of 2021, right now, as it currently sits, you can write off 20, 22% of that off your tax bill. That can be spread out over a five-year period. So it doesn't all have to be taken at once. That's something to work out with your accountant, decide what's the best direction for you to go. Um, is there an upfront lump sum? That all depends on the installer. Uh, in our case, you know, we do require an upfront amount of money on it and then a balance at the end of it. There are companies out there offering 0% interest uh, or 0% upfront money. Um, like anything that says, you know, oh, well, you don't have to pay us anything to get started. Please, please make sure you do thorough investigation of those companies and the opportunities. Um, I'm not gonna tell you, there, there are some that are good companies that offer that. We're not in that position. Our company's not large enough financially to handle that kind of a burden. Um, you know, we're not tied into that finance marketplace to do that. And it's something we're looking into, but 
I, I would really urge consumers, please ask a lot of questions, get references. And for that matter, even with just an installer, you know, based here in Kentucky, ask for the references, ask for their experience, you know, get customer references, you know, because like any industry, we have some bad actors also out there. You know, it's and I will tell you the solar industry is not something that you get laid off on Tuesday and Wednesday, you hang a sign out that says, hey, I can install solar panels. It's there is a huge amount of training that goes into it. There's a huge learning curve. Um, there's you know national certification that is required in some cases, you know, depending on the job site. There's a lot that goes into this. It's not just something that you just rudimentarily go out and start plugging solar panels together. There's a lot to it. And it can be not only dangerous, but it can quite literally be deadly if it's handled incorrectly. You're working with live current when you're installing solar panels. So there is you know, things that you have to pay attention to. Um, can we sell our electricity back to the grid for residential and commercial in the state of Kentucky at this time? No, you cannot. Under the current laws, you get what's called a net metering agreement. So any power that you generate that goes back to the grid, you get credited for, but you don't get a physical check. Now, with that being said, in uh, 2018, the legislature passed a bill that does allow for utilities to begin paying customers for that. I don't really view that as a good thing. I think the credit is better. The reason I don't is you run a risk of, depending on the tax codes in the area you're in, you potentially could be taxed both by the IRS and by the state government for any capital gains that you get in receiving a check from the power company. You are in essence becoming a power generating source that is selling power to the grid. So that is a consideration. Whether that will happen or not, I can't tell you that. Um, and I'll get back to net metering in just a few moments. Cost of installation, the first thing I will tell you, square footage doesn't matter one iota. I've seen 1,000 square foot homes that have $600 a month electric bills. I've seen 4,500 square foot homes that have $150 a month electric bill. It all depends on the amount of power you use is to the amount of solar you need to cover your costs. So the more energy conscious you are, the more uh, conscious of light switches, LEDs, you know, keeping the furnace down or keeping the air down, whatever you want to call it. That is a key ingredient to your power bill. What you're looking to do is offset the cost of your power. Um, as I said, right now, you can't overgenerate and sell power back to the grid. Uh, overgeneration in, in a net metering status, you wind up giving power away to the grid. You're not going to get compensated for it in the long run, though. So that's why it's important, whether it's working with me, working with somebody else that's a professional, understanding how the payoffs and the paybacks work and how to balance your system accordingly to your usage. That's really important from that standpoint. Um, who owns the panels? In the state of Kentucky currently for residential and small scale commercial, it is not legal to lease the panels from a third party. Which is absolutely insane. I, I agree. I, I don't want to be but, too blunt. That's absolutely insane. But yeah. it's the law, and it's an example of something we've got to change. Yeah. Why, the, why uh, is that? Well, go ahead, John. Uh, well, currently in the state of Kentucky, we have a law that was originally written in the early '60s. That's um, if I read, Adam, help me out here if I get this incorrect on the name of it. But it's basically gearing. It's the. Um, well, I don't recall the name right this moment, but anyhow, what it does, it guarantees a territorial monopoly for each of the utilities. When KU started, when the state started pushing to have KU split up their, what was Ma Bell of the electric company back in the 60s, um, a lot of the RECCs came online. There was a lot of sniping going on. So if I had a manufacturing plant on the right side of the street that had a huge electric demand, and I'm coming in to start supplying power in an RECC, and I say, hey, I can give you a better rate than KU does if you'll come across the street and join my company. Well, it got to be a little you know, tit for tat kind of thing for a period of time. So this law was put in place that guarantees any utility a guaranteed monopoly for the area they cover. Now, there's a lot of provisos in there. There are some cities that have their own uh, home rule utilities. Maria, just as a quick example, um, Nicholasville for another one real quick, their local downtown is on a, on a home rule utility. You get into a lot of complexities at that point. 
But the bottom line is, is it, as a third party, if I or Adam or Chad started installing solar systems and leasing those to their customers, I in essence become a utility. So under that guidance that says, I can't be a competing utility on your territory, I can't lease panels. So, so let me just, I really just wanna put a fine point on this. What John just laid out is absolutely the truth. And what it means is our government is using a regulatory approach for a 21st century economy uh, based on one that was written before everybody on this call was born. It doesn't make any sense. And it is, <laughs> it, well, John, you, you were, you're not that born, but you were, you were in short pants, brother. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, this is just insane, folks. I mean, think about how much more the, complicated the world is and how different our economy is today from what it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. We're literally using a regulatory framework invented in the 60s. Uh, and, and that's nuts. And we're paying the price for it. Uh, we, are, we are not on the grid for new energy, new economy, economic development, folks. We're not. We're not even in the conversation. And, you know, one of my frustrations is, is somebody who's been involved in politics for a long time is that in Kentucky, we're fighting over, you know, right to work and tax code and, 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 our, and our approach to labor, uh, worker, labor management relations. None of this is relevant to the new economy. They want to know that the people you're churning out of your schools are, uh, are bright enough to help run these companies. They want to know that you've got a healthcare system that is uh, strong enough to make sure people are healthy that you've got a quality of life where people want to live and that you're and you're burning clean energy. That's what they want to know. That That is in three or four points what the preconditions for modern economic development in Kentucky is struggling on every single one. Well, that's really interesting and, and good to know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for, for the next question, go ahead. One second. I got two more real quick ones here. I'm just answering Angela's line of questions. So okay, go ahead. Um, cost of insurance repair on panels. Um, most solar panels, the, the active warranty on those 25 years. There are some legislators in Frankfurt who have made comments that are publicly recorded saying, oh, they're only good for three or four years or five years and 10 years. The active warranty for production is 25 years. Life expectancy here in Kentucky is 30 to 35 years plus. Now, if the panels we're putting on our utility scale projects are insured to produce power for 35 years. There you go. These are not short-term investments. No. Um, I can tell you there are some solar panels in Southern Kentucky that were installed in the early 60s. A few years ago, uh, and some guys went in and took those panels off, cleaned them thoroughly, changed the wiring on the back and put them back in service. And once the wiring was changed, they were operating within less than 5% of what the original wattage for the panel was. Wow. Like anything, the wiring, wiring deteriorates, which are the house or anything else. So, you know, there's a lot of theory out there right now saying in 20 years, we could go back and replace the wiring on the back of the panels and they're still gonna have a much longer lifespan of operational lifespan. The other thing, the insurance cost on panels all depends on the circumstance in your insurance company. Um, some of my customers take out a rider if it's actually placed on their house. Some of them on farm, you know, the farm owner's insurance, you know, will cover that as part of the farm buildings. They look at it as a separate structure. Um, I will tell you there are a couple of counties here in the state that have recently adopted um, uh, permitting requirements for building permits and for some other similar things that's, that's brand new. This has just come on in the past year to year and a half at the outside. There's only two of them that I'm aware of at this point to require that. But, um, you know, those are things that need to be considered. Again, you know, you need to look at that. Uh, the last one, government rebates and tax credits. Right now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the ITC is at 22%. It was at 30%. Uh, given our questionable political status moving forward, and I'll leave it at that, I'm not going to get into a political discussion. But Assuming that the uh, current leader in the polls continues on and the fact that he has already brought on an energy secretary or he's nominated one already, he's already created a climate control secretary position, the first ever in the history of the United States. 
we're probably going to be looking at some more incentives moving forward of some type, whether it's income tax, whether it's some other program. Um, I fully expect to see municipalities have opportunities uh, that they haven't had before. I know that's going to be a driving factor moving forward. Also, if you are a rural business or a farm business, and it does have to be an LLC business or other incorporated business, there's what's called the REAP program, which is through the USDA. That will pay 25% of the total cost of the installation of your system. Now, it is, there's, they, the USDA likes their paperwork by the pound. We use a professional grant writer, um, and he's exceptionally good at it. But long story to short, that can cover the system. If you take the 22%, you're now at 47% of your system covered in cost, either through grant or incentives. Now, you still have to pay the money up front. Don't get me wrong. But the opportunity for a rebate and refund is there. Uh, as Chad and, and Adam were talking about earlier with the iPad and PACE programs, that it goes even further yet. So there's tremendous opportunity already out here in the marketplace right now. Um, also, Mountain Association out of Berea, we do a lot of work in Southeast Kentucky. Uh, MA has come out with a 20-year 4% fixed interest loan for nonprofits, for school systems, for businesses. It does not cover residential, but it'll cover all the other for churches that's a tremendous interest rate locked in at 20%. And they're doing tremendous things down there. The other side of this, the scenario right now is we are looking at the, the PSC is meeting on net metering as we're right now today. Um, they are the final arguments are to be turned in by the end of this week. Um, they will then go into private discussion next week and sometime between now and the end of the year, there's or the very first week of January, they're supposed to come out with a ruling on net metering for Kentucky Power, which serves Southeast Kentucky, uh, basically from the Lewis County, I believe Lewis County is as far north as they run and that's all the way down to Pike County and on out to around Whitley County in that area. So it's, it's a big chunk of territory. To give you an idea how potentially detrimental this can be, right now the current net metering rate is one to one ratio. They're looking to, they have requested to take what, and we'll just use a round number of 10 cents. It's actually more than that in Southeast Kentucky right now. It's actually closer to 12 or 13 cents per kilowatt hours, what you get credited. They're looking to take that to three and a half cents. So, you know, they're basically going to get the debt metering program outright. Um, there are a number of other changes they're requesting. All of the utilities in the state of Kentucky are in the process of filing rate cases. Uh, LGE and KU just filed theirs uh, Thanksgiving, the week after Thanksgiving. Um, I'm not sure if East Kentucky Power, which is the power provider for 16 of the RECCs here in the state. We've got Big Rivers Power out in West Kentucky. Something that I didn't mention earlier, I'm actually vice president for the Kentucky Solar Industries Association. So I work in Frankfurt every winter, you know, meeting with the legislators, you know, trying to go, you know, trying to help the industry as much as we can, but more importantly, help the consumers. To give you an idea how dire this is in Southeast Kentucky, they now have the highest energy rates in the state of Kentucky. They've had a 40% increase over the past six years. East K Kentucky Power has asked for an additional 25%. Let that soak in for a minute because that's over the next two years. So you're looking at a severely economic depressed area. You're looking at energy rates that could raise as much as 60 to 70% over a seven year period from where it has been. Their demand rates have increased. They're cutting the knees out from underneath the net metering program. So those businesses or individuals who can afford to install solar are getting that cut out from underneath of them. This is an industry, this is a, a social issue. Uh, Adam and I have had this conversation on several occasions. We're potentially looking at a lot of small businesses in Southeast Kentucky that will fail not because they don't have business, but because they can't afford their electric bills and continue to operate. We're already seeing churches in Southeast Kentucky and other nonprofits that are joining resources. They're closing their churches for the winter months and two or three churches are meeting in one church. And they, they switch around weekends or they switch around days of the week because they can't afford their power bills to run their churches year in and year out. John, if I could jump in, this is Please, happening folks. It is a social media phenomenon that it, it's become a big deal that people in the mountains will take pictures of their power bill and lay it next to their utility and their grocery bill. You had the people who literally powered the industrial development of this country for a hundred years as miners who were paying among the lowest energy rates in the country are now paying amongst the highest. 
And I think we as people who, you know, are drawn to politics and government and public affairs because of a, a moral belief that we are our brother's keeper, that's just not right. And, and you know, whether you're, whether you're a pensioner who is, you know, living in a, in a you know, 800 or 1,000 square foot house paying a few hundred bucks a month in utility bills, you know, whether you're a company that is drowning under it, talk to school superintendents who are literally making decisions between uh, how they're going to pay their power bill and how many school teachers are going to have to lay off to get it done. This is a very big deal, and it's a critical moral challenge of our time as Kentuckians. And we are so far behind the eight ball. We're in such deep trouble. But there is a way out. It is to acknowledge that, you know, we can embrace a renewable energy future. And if we have to fight, you know, vested interests to get it done, that's been the central theme of human progress since, you know, since Adam and Eve. So, but, it, but we have to get to work because, because the, um, we're being left behind in the state and we're making really bad choices. And it, what John referenced with the gutting of the net metering law, you know, these guys are getting away with that because our legislature passed it. Our legislature allowed them to do that when literally the rest of the entire world is running as quickly as it can in the direction of renewable energy. Kentucky looks around and says, hey, hold my beer. Um, we're going to go the other direction. And if it, it would be funny if it weren't so damn tragic. Um, and we, we really have got to empower our people uh, to, to demand a democratized grid, to demand access to renewable energy, to just wake up and, and shake our politicians out of this Rip Van Winkle routine. Because by the time they wake up to the realities of, of the new market in the new world, it could be too late for your kids and mine. And that's just not acceptable. Well, that's that's really really good information. I was actually going to ask about that question, so you, you you guys covered that really well, and I think it's a it's a decent segue to my next question. I promised you guys forty five minutes, so we're we're already a couple minutes over. You know how how time flies when you're having fun. It always happens. You have the best conversations, and you look up, and all of a sudden, forty five minutes are gone. But I think it's a decent segue into the next question. I've just combined about three questions here that we've got coming in. Um, Roxanne says that coal is still king in eastern Kentucky, and some people see solar as the energy as the enemy. How do we promote solar without instilling fear into the community? Slash, you know, what are some opportunities so, for landowners? So it's a dated worldview. Uh, the reality is, and I want everybody to pay close attention to this. I am working with more coal companies on solar projects then the Coal Association has members. Everybody get that? Coal may be king, but even the coal guys know it's dead. Now that doesn't mean met coal, the coal that's used to make steel is always gonna be around because you're gonna have to have carbon to make steel. But the fact of the matter is the game has shifted. I'm working with the largest coal companies in utility and the, the largest coal companies in Appalachia to do utility scale renewable energy projects because what we offer is the opportunity to, to monetize a stranded asset. The work we're doing in Martin County, you know, I've structured a deal that will generate a private capital investment of between quarter of a billion and $300 million. We moved a $300 million industrial revenue bond in Martin County. Keep in mind folks, this is the heart of coal country. It is literally where Lyndon Johnson announced the war on poverty. And we're gonna do a solar project there that will put to, put to work, uh, particularly in the construction phase, at least 300 locals with a preference given to out-of-work out uh, miners at a rate of $30 an hour. These are great jobs, but the notion that, you know, we, we and, and this is what's so tragic to me, it just kills me. You know, I, uh, I'm a member of, of, a, of a family that grew tobacco in Kentucky for more than a century. And uh, our political leaders saw that it was going away. And you had people like Mitch McConnell and Wendell Ford work together in a bipartisan fashion. You had governors like Paul Patton in Kentucky and Jim Hunt in North Carolina who all got together, negotiated a master settlement agreement with the tobacco companies, and we literally helped our tobacco farmers trans transition away from that industry. And now today, gate farm receipts are, are dramatically higher than they were during the, during the tobacco economy. Farmers are dramatically better off than when we were growing tobacco. But what did we do for our miners? 
we offered two decades of, of rhetoric and we didn't prepare our people for a market shift. And now you see the poorest counties in America are in, are in either in Appalachia or the Mississippi Delta and the economy has completely disappeared. And the biggest insult that you can pay to the people who powered the industrial development of this country for a hundred years is to lie to them and say it's coming back. It is not coming back. And so the compliment we can pay to them is pave a way for them to be relevant to the opportunities of a new economy. Folks, this isn't controversial anymore. You know, um, when App Harvest built their greenhouse in Moorhead with 250 employees and then did an open call for people across Appalachia, they got 6,000 applications. We have already have hundreds of applications on our way to thousands for people who want to work on the Martin County side. And I'm actively developing in three other sites in, in, uh, in, in, just in Kentucky. That doesn't include the work we're doing in the coal fields of Virginia. It doesn't include uh, what we're doing in southeastern Ohio. This thing has shifted. And we have got to pay people the compliment of telling them the truth. And, uh, and we've truly betrayed them. Our political system has let these folks down by telling them when, that there was hope when there wasn't. The fact of the matter is, is more coal-fired plants closed under four years of Donald Trump than eight years of Barack Obama. And it, they, that happened because the marketplace has shifted. And if you want to be mad, you know, if, you, if the coal economy has disappeared, be mad at Wall Street. Be mad at the be mad at this this enormous generation of of Gen X kids or Gen Gen uh, you know millennials who are the largest generation in American history who are now driving the market as consumers who just simply will not buy a product from cars to candy that isn't that isn't responsibly and sustainably produced. It's just the reality of where we are. So you can lie to people and make them feel good for a moment, or you can look them in the eye and tell them the truth and say, we have a plan to build this going forward. What we're doing in Martin County um, will be, has been described as the most iconic renewable energy project in the country. Follow this folks over the next few years, we're going to make big news, but we will bring global attention to Appalachia as a workforce that can benefit from the emerging economy rather than be a victim of it. If I can throw one other thing out real quick too, the other side of the, of the coal discussion on the power plant side, it isn't, you know, a lot of people say, well, the EPA is shutting it all down. That's not necessarily the case. And I'm not going to say there aren't expenses. There are. But sure. more importantly, the operational expense of running a coal-fired plant, strictly from a business standpoint, we're not talking any environmental issues whatsoever here, just the expense of operating a coal-fired plant is considerably higher than running one with a natural gas base. You've got to, you know, you've got to stockpile coal. You have, you know, heavy equipment that's got to be operated on conveyor systems. There's, you know, enormous, just enormous expenditures in the operational expense of running that plant. The individual utilities are starting to step back and say, you know, we can convert to natural gas, even if we don't look at the, at the environmental permitting. We can convert to a, a combination of natural gas and renewables, and that is what is happening. LGE published an article um, three or four years ago in the Courier Journal that by, 30, by 2030 or 2035, in that time period, they will no longer have any coal operation plants at all. They will be doing 100% renewables and gas pyre. That's a fact. That's their words. That's not me as somebody in the solar industry making that comment. KU is right behind them. They're doing the same thing. Uh, the E.W. Brown plant here just up the road from me here in Danville, Kentucky, over on Lake Harrington, uh, is a hydro plant. It has solar, also is a coal-fired plant. They have shut down two of their coal furnaces at this point, or in the process of it, out of the three they had. So those markets are changing. The other thing operationally, again, it's an expensive process to, to take coal and operate. It's just strictly on a business standpoint. I've heard legislators literally plead with the power companies, well, isn't there any way you can keep these coal-fired plants open? It doesn't pay them to keep them open from the operational standpoint and from the stockholder standpoint of being responsible fiscally to earn an income for those companies that are income-generating companies. From the standpoint of a company like East Kentucky Power, which uh, subjugates the power for the 16 RECCs that are part of their cooperative membership, 
they have a responsibility to the co-op members, people who are on those power systems to provide power at the cheapest possible cost. Even East Kentucky Power is invested in a very large solar array out there. You know, they've got an eight and a half, nine megawatt array. Now, given the size of what Adam's talking about or some other systems that are being proposed here in Kentucky, what's up in Chad's area up in Northern Kentucky, it's a small system. But the point being is the industry is shifting. And over the next 10 years, between 2020 and 2030, the commercial industrial movement is heading that direction. The coal industry and the legislators who work in that area are going to have to grasp that reality. They should have been doing this 20 years ago, and they were told this 20 years ago. I grew up in Ashland. Steel was king. Coke was king. We made Coke for making steel there, and both of those manufacturing plants, which employed thousands of people, are gone. Those jobs no longer exist, and they're not going to exist. And so I, I would just like to step in and really quickly say to that point, you're where, where, where does the American ingenuity step up and, and just where, where does the guy come along and why aren't we manufacturing solar panels in Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky? The, guy, the guys that used to dig coal and their grandfathers that dug coal. Solar panels are the new block of coal. It's just what they are. So put the pride back in eastern Kentucky. Let's, 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 let's build it here. Anything built in Kentucky is better and it's best and everything has shifted. To John's point, uh, one, of, one of the largest industrial developers REITs in the world is Prologis. We do some work for them. They have an entire, their own entire division. Every building that they build, they try to cover it with solar panels. And that also attracts, to Adam's point, it attracts the talent and the tenants. And guess what? If you're a real estate developer, you can charge more rent for a nicer building. It's, it, it, it just floors me how far behind we are on all this stuff. And I know everyone on this call feels the same way, but it's just a couple of little things. And, and Adam, why does it take, if, if you're doing a development and you want to get in the PJM market, why, why does that take 18 to 24 months? Why, why can't that process be streamlined? Absolutely. Folks, I, 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 again, structured a deal that will bring 250 to $300 million in capital investment to one of the poorest counties in Kentucky with very little help other than moral support from our state government uh, and, not a, and not really not a dime of public money in it. And, and doing this and making this kind of public, this kind of private investment in, in spite of government, not because of it, it just shows you how powerful and permanent this market shift is, folks. And, the, and really the decision point here is, are we gonna be relevant to the 21st century or are we gonna be dinosaurs? And you know, it, it, you wouldn't want a doctor to sugarcoat stuff for you. You want people to give it to you straight. We are in serious trouble in Kentucky. No, both parties are to blame. The political leaders we have elected on both sides are to blame. This is a failure of imagination. And what I love about what Chad said is it is easily solvable with American and Kentucky ingenuity. We can do it. The future can be bright. We've just got to be, we just got to choose to be relevant to the future. Well, th this has been a very edifying call. This, I mean, we we definitely chose the right people on this subject. I feel I'm, I'll have to go back and listen to it again to make sure I, I caught everything. Uh, I apologize that we went over a little bit, but uh, if we could maybe just do a, a quick lightning round, a five second answer for these remaining four or five questions here. Um, just boom, boom, boom. We'll knock them out. Um, Janie says, I can't, I can't get solar on my house due to shade. Are there any other options for me investing in solar? Absolutely. Check out Arcadia Power. Arcadia.com is, uh, is the largest virtual digital utility. It was founded by a guy named Kieran Batraju, who housed this for irony of all ironies, grew up in Pikeville, Kentucky. And what you do is you subscribe to them. They pay the power bill. You'll pay a slight premium. They invest that premium in community-based solar and, and uh, wind projects and literally provide for you a dashboard so you can offset your personal carbon footprint. It's the coolest thing in the world. Check out Arcadia.com. Yeah, that's very yeah, that's very cool. You, you told me about that. I looked him up. Martina Jackson, our friend, you, you, uh, you guys probably know her. Um, she was asking about the EKU project. How many, how many jobs does a project like that create? I know, Adam, you know, you know about this sort of thing. And well, you all know about this. So I think Don's actually working on this project. Actually, yeah. That, yeah. That is our project. Actually, on that one, um, 
if I include everybody that was involved with it, we probably created about 15 or 20 jobs. It's a 350,000 watt solar array. Um, besides my people, we brought in a couple of extra temps to work with us that we hire on occasion. Uh, the excavation company was there. The, uh, there's two other electrical contractors doing work on that job besides us. So there's a fair number of people involved in that project. Um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, 350,000 watts is a large system, but it's, you know, you look at some of the projects Chad's involved with or Adam's involved with, it's a drop in the bucket. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at a six megawatt project potentially to work on this coming year. Uh, that's going to be coming out that we're aware of, um, taking into account that our 350,000 watt system is 18 of those systems of one six megawatt system, if that gives you an idea, the scope of what you're dealing with. So, you know, that marketplace is there, it's growing. We expect to see it to continue to grow. Um, and, I, you know, corporately, that's where we're looking to move our company more into that area. It's not that we're getting rid of residential. We just know there's greater opportunities out there in front of us. But um, anyhow, I'll shut up because you got more questions. <laughs> and if they want to find out more, they're welcome to contact me directly on our website at, at wildernesstracesolar.com. Be happy to discuss the details of the project with them. That's a really unique project all the way around from the very get-go. Okay, great. Well, uh, and I'll say this too, as I mentioned earlier, if anybody out there listening now or later wants, wants any more information, you're welcome to contact me and I can put you in touch or try, you know, try to help you out as well. Julie, do you have any uh, last questions or comments or anything before we wrap up for tonight? Um, I just say thank you all so much for joining us. I um, have been interested in solar for a long time, but I feel like I learned a ton tonight and a lot of things I want to keep researching and learning about. Um, my biggest takeaway, I think, though, is really the importance of us being involved in the political process and understanding the impact that that's having on our whole state. Um, and, you know, I think all three of you at different times said, you know, this is a social thing. It's not just business, which is also important, but it's also a, a social justice issue and an equity issue. Um, and I think that we need to keep that in mind as well and, and really pay attention to it. Um, so thank you all for, for bringing that to the forefront. Absolutely, absolutely Julie. And, and since you mentioned that, I'm, I'm going to throw one other thing in here that just came in. Tammy asked, um, are there any currently elected officials, I guess in our legislature, who really understand this and might be might have a chance of leading the way on it. I don't know if anybody wants to tackle that or not. <laughs> Just kind of quickly. I, I, would, I would say yes. We we do have a few, and I will preface that by saying a few, and on both sides of the aisle. Uh, not just in the house, not just in the uh, on the Democrat side, which people normally think about, but we do have some re Republican legislators who have been very proactive with solar. Um, and I will tell you factually, they have taken some heat from the leadership over it. Um, they are very heavily tied to the utility companies and to the utility uh, political funding, for lack of a nicer way to put that. Um, but, you know, um, we have some, actually a couple in East Kentucky that their counties are, are really pushing. Um, the Whitesburg area, I've got five, we'll have seven installations down there by mid-year this coming year. Uh, and those are all commercial, those are either commercial or nonprofits. Uh, we've done a lot. We've actually trained a company down there to work on installing solar so my guys don't have to travel down there all the time. Um, we're working with them to provide them the resources they need to, you know, get the equipment and things required. We help them with the design of the systems. And then they're actually beginning to do the actual installation work. Most of those guys are displaced coal miners. So it is, I mean, and that was a very active, that was a very active direction on my part. I'm from Northeast Kentucky, not Southeast, but I still see the same thing going on up there that's going in Southeast Kentucky. We're still in the same boat. And I have a very, um, my, the owner of our company tells me at times I'm a little too altruistic. That's okay, I have no problem with that. Um, we have a need and there is opportunities to meet that need and create jobs and create opportunities. I'll close off my end real quick by saying the employees of Southeast Kentucky built the automotive industry because all the jobs that were not available back in the 50s and 60s, they went north to Ohio and Indiana and Michigan and got jobs at the big three. And, and I mean, you talk to anybody in Southeast Kentucky, they'll tell you, oh yeah, he worked for Ford, or he worked for Chevy, or he worked for Dodge. That's a fact, that happened. Our workers in Kentucky are some of the best trainable and trained in the United States. 
you take a coal miner that's working with, you know, megawatts worth of power for the electrical usage, that's working with high-end equipment, that's working with very specialized safety requirements, that, you know, those guys are well-trained employees. They know how to do their job and they do it exceedingly well. We took their jobs away. The mines are closing. But that doesn't mean their skill sets are not usable and are not available. We need to open those doors for them to apply their skill sets. And companies from outside of Kentucky are beginning to realize that. South Central Kentucky, you know, you look at the areas down around Tompkinsville in that area, they're struggling. You know, you know there are, are numerous counties around the state that are struggling, but the employment base, the skill sets are there. You just have to transfer them into a different area. And, you know, the solar industry has an opportunity to do a great deal of that. More importantly, we have the opportunity to, to partner with other industries that can do that and help everybody out in the long run. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Well, th thank you all very much for being here. You, you guys have been really, really great uh, on talking about solar. I'm from southeastern Kentucky, too, and I uh, or you, you said northeast Kentucky, but I, I'm from southeastern Kentucky, and um, there's certainly uh, quite a few areas there that uh, that need jobs. So thank you, Adam. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, John. And of course, Julie, for, for being my co-host. Sorry we went over a, a little bit, but uh, uh, it's it's great seeing you guys. It's uh, It's been a, an edifying experience. So uh, for, for, yeah, thank you very much. So for our next show, we're going to meet next week. We're do, going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to be meeting at the same time and same place. We're going to have a show of local musicians. We're going to have Todd Melton. Actually, Todd moved away, but he's still a Kentuckian. Uh, we're going to have Travis Napier from Nine Neck of the Woods and Kelly Caldwell. So we're, it's going to be a fun show. And I uh, hope you guys all, all, all join us, all, all Kentucky-based musicians here. So thank you once again, and thanks everyone out there who enjoyed getting lots of comments coming in saying, uh, that they really appreciated the conversation. They learned a lot tonight. Thanks for having us. I'll take care. Have a happy holiday. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. Live stream is stopped. Thank you very much. Uh, Trent, real quick. It would be interesting in about three or four months once some of this net metering stuff takes hold, and we see what changes are out there. If we could potentially do another show, Adam's project will have moved along. We'll, we'll see some other new legislation that potentially may be coming up. But more importantly, on the federal level, I think there's going to be some opportunities presented.